Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. If you like what you hear today, please add a rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Mewtwo has a medical degree from the University of Cambridge. During her PhD, she studied pupillometry, the science of pupil movements which sparked her curiosity and stress. Mewtwo has since written the book Stress Proof, the scientific solution to protect your brain and body and be more resilient every day, creating a stress strategy based on over 550 cited published studies. Hey, thanks for chatting with me today, Mewtwo. Thank you for having me. It's great to chat with you. And what a fascinating book that you've written and uh, sort of a fascinating background that you have. Can you tell me a little bit about your uh, background in pupilometry? What in the world is that? And why are the pupils a fascinating window into stress? Thank you. So I've had um, a slightly, well, a very interesting and tortuous route to leading up to writing the book. And so I, you know, I was always interested in neuroscience and so on. And then I specialized, and I'm a, I'm a doctor, so I qualified. And then I specialized in ophthalmology and then I trained in ophthalmology. And then I did a PhD in neuro-ophthalmology. And part of that was pupillometry. And pupillometry, as you said, is the study of pupil movements. And the reason why it's so fascinating is because Really, there are two points in the entire body where the autonomic nervous system becomes obvious or measurable to the outside world. And one is something that most, well, many of us are familiar with is the heart, which is why all the HRV, heart rate variability apps are all kicking off at the moment. And the second point, or I'd say actually they're the first point, are the pupils. 
because the pupils are supplied by both the sympathetic and the parasympathetic arts of the autonomic nervous system. So observing them and observing their movements tells you a wealth of information about what's going on inside the autonomic nervous system. And most interestingly for me, what's going on with regard to stress. That is so fascinating. You know, I wasn't fully aware of the implications of that, but I was aware of some research showing that the more people blink, the faster rate that people blink is might be an indicator of dopamine levels, and that's correlated with creative performance. I don't know if you ever came across that study. I have. I have, and that's a very, very fascinating study. And since I read that study, actually, it's it's so true because, you know, whenever you see people trying really hard to answer a question or to search for an answer within their mind for something. You see their, them, you know, normally maybe they don't blink very often, but you just see their eyelids flutter like crazy. And you think, wow, that's so much dopamine kicking off. <laughs> so it's absolutely fascinating. Do people who um, like are expert meditators or people that are just like super chill, like surfer dudes from California, do they not blink their eyes that much, that fast? So the eye blink rate isn't something that I've actually studied so much, but I mean, I'd expect if it is in, you know, if it does reflect dopamine activity, then I'd expect it to be quite situational as well. So I suppose, you know, if you're a Californian surfer and you're really determined to get on one particular wave, which you keep missing, I guess, you know, you probably will have a faster rate of eye blinks compared to someone who's just chilling somewhere with, with nothing, you know, not really motivated to do anything. <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> I shouldn't have conflated surfers with meditators. They're not the same people necessarily. So, you know, what do we get wrong about stress? You write in your book that we get some things wrong in our, our everyday conceptions of the predictors of stress. Could you please talk a little bit about what we get wrong? Sure. So I just want to kind of just stepping back into the pupils and that that kind of is the snowballed, the avalanche of stress. If I just talk about that a little bit and then I'll come to this. So if you go all the way back to, well, all the way up in the body to the pupils, the reason why pupils are so fast you know, we just talked about how interconnected they are with the autonomic nervous system. They also lie at the level of, or they're very tightly connected to the level of the locus ceruleus, which is a part of the brain that deals with arousal. And that is supposed to be a very central area when it comes to stress perception, stress reactivity, and anxiety reactivity. And the thing that we tend to get wrong, well, it's, you see, stress is such a ubiquitous word, right? We talk about stress with regard to so many things and so many contexts. And if you read the newspapers, or if you read, you know, popular press, one time you'll find, oh, stress is good for you, stress is bad for you. And, you know, stress happens, it starts, you know, maybe someone has written, it starts somewhere in your adrenal glands, and it goes all the way upwards, or it comes from activating them too, too much, or from them being too active. So what we're learning is that, actually, through the work, much of the work in psychology, above everything else, is that, of course, that stress begins at the level of the brain. And because it begins at the level of the brain, it's downstream effects. So when I say the level of the brain, I you know I include within that the locus ceruleus and of course the prefrontal and central autonomic network connections. And the downstream effects of that don't just reflect on the HPA axis, so on the chain of organs and on the chain of hormonal reactions that we normally associate with stress. 
So the downstream actions of that actually reflect or extend into things such as our metabolism, so things like insulin resistance, things like our cardiovascular system. Through inflammation and through other things, our cardiovascular reactivity, so you know how quickly our blood pressure rises when we become angry, and also our baseline blood pressure, that's indicative of chronic stress. And of course, through things like through our circadian rhythm, again, the pupil is connecting all of this because of course, the light that determines our day-night rhythm is served by the same receptor that serves the pupillary light response. So, you know, that's, it's another great focal point for that. But, you know, through that, chronic stress can just manifest in the way your day-night rhythm, your circadian rhythm becomes anomalous, becomes abnormal. And all of these can happen independent of someone feeling acutely stressed all of the time. So in that sense, stress is not just, you know, the standard billboard image of someone looking and feeling frustrated. When we talk about stress or chronic stress in a bad way, we're talking about lots and lots of different effects that all begin at the level of the brain, but can actually manifest in different people in completely, apparently unrelated ways. So why does your accent calm me down? <laughs> well, clearly something to do with association. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, I did live in England for, for quite some time, and I found it pretty calming. Uh, I found the people pretty awesome over there. Yeah, I think that I find the opposite, because I think that the pace and the energy and the motivation and the drive of New York and of America in general, I love that. And it's a great antidote. I think that the, we're a bit, you know, slower, a bit more relaxed, but your energy is just amazing in this country. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll take credit for the energy of my country. So um, you mentioned a lot of kind of buzzwords today. One in particular that you mentioned is inflammation. And everybody's, everybody and their mother and grandmother and great-grandmother is talking about inflammation it, because it, it seems to be the source of so many issues. It's fascinating that stress is related now, are you mentioning just correlations or do we really, is the science really at that stage where we have causal understanding of stress causing inflammation as opposed to, I mean, it's bidirectional, right? Like if you have like a leaky gut, for instance, that can actually cause stress, just as stress can cause a leaky gut. Am I right? Correct. Correct. So yes, it's bidirectional. And in answer to your previous question, in animal studies, we're now getting empirical data, causal data. In humans, it's obviously ethically much more difficult to test. But in humans, we are seeing certain things. For instance, we are noticing that certain types of clinical depression, which are refractory to normal depressive treatment, normal antidepressant treatment, actually respond to anti-inflammatory treatment. Now, that's not saying that all cases of depression are happening because of inflammation, but inflammation does play a role and plays a role that's large enough to alleviate the symptoms with the use of anti-inflammatory medication. So that's one example of a human correlation. And of course, you mentioned leaky gut. So that's actually a fantastic area of study of inflammation because it fuses so many arms of human metabolism. So from things like diabetes and insulin resistance to, of course, generalized inflammation. And it also brings into it this whole new world that we've just discovered of the gut's microbiota because 
all of these things ensure, so the gut microbiota play, play a role, and of course, the integrity of the intestinal walls and the mucus layer that's just within it, they all influence the immune cells because a large part of our immune system resides along our gut. So that's a great focal point bringing all of those together. And in terms of the cause and effect relationships, again, in animal studies, these have got great you know, cause effect data in humans, we are getting a little, the picture is a little murkier, again, because of, of ethical constraints, but we are getting clear examples of if you introduce endotoxins, or if you look at situations where you're getting endotoxemia, or you're getting, you're looking at situations where you're inducing inflammation in a human being, that is manifesting at the level of the brain as stress. So for instance, you know, we know we've known for a long time, just to give you a picture of inflammation and its effect on the mind and mood and so on. We've known for a long time that for instance, interferon alpha is a treatment, is one as a treatment option in certain diseases, including things like hepatitis C and certain types of cancers and so on. And when you're giving interferon alpha treatment, one of the side effects is anger, is impulsivity and frustration a change in mood. And, you know, that's a brilliant cause and effects demonstration where you're increasing levels of interferon alpha in the bloodstream and you're immediately seeing a manifestation in the patient's mood. And that's a very clear human picture. So we also have that at the level of endotoxins and endotoxemia. So we're getting a patchier, but again, a cause and effect picture, but a a more patchy one in the human world, but it is improving by the day. Studies are accumulating so rapidly. A lot of people attempt to take probiotics to help their leaky gut. What are your thoughts on probiotic supplements? So in terms of the scientific realm, there is no doubt. We, We know now beyond a doubt that, you know, we are all before we discovered or we we were aware of the existence of the richness of this huge population of microbes living within us, there are many aspects of life, of physiology, of disease, of even of mind, of mental disorders, which were inexplicable. We couldn't connect the dots. And as soon as you bring the microbiota into it, suddenly you get so many answers. And, you know, one great example is that we have, you know, the microbiota are like a garden that we all grow we all have different species, we all have different plants, different shrubs, and it is a vibrant ecosystem, which because of diversity, it adapts and it changes in response to change and it digests our food. One of the many things we're observing in general are, you know, people seem these days to become more intolerant to certain things than they used to in the past. And, you know, various other little relationships that we couldn't really explain before, especially with relation to insulin resistance, obesity, diabetes, even hypertension. So the studies on probiotics so far, where you're adding certain species of bacteria and seeing a result, the best empirical evidence has emerged so far in animal studies. Again, it's difficult for ethical reasons to do them so rigorously in humans. But the animal studies are really quite striking because you're finding that certain species of bacteria um, have almost remarkable effect from influencing vitamin levels, influencing mineral levels in within our system, to of course you know influencing immunity, influencing mood, influencing stress reactivity. Now there have been a handful of 
randomized controlled trials, small ones carried out in humans using probiotics. And many of them have used fermented milk drinks with certain probiotic species added to them. And they have shown some very, very promising, almost striking results within as short a time as something like four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks. I think my general view is that there is still a very large amount of knowledge that we have yet to gather with regard to probiotics. But what is true, what what all the studies point to are the following. Number one, diversity is really important. Number two, the probiotics that seem to be most effective if you're taking probiotic supplements are ones that have more than one species incorporated within them. So instead of taking just one bacteria, whatever supplement you're taking should have quite a few. And of course, the third is the numbers, because by the time you're taking the probiotic, you don't know where the bacteria are ending up, or if indeed they're actually surviving all the way down. So I think there is still a lot to know. But you know, one of the one of my favorite examples of its effectiveness actually come from Elias Mechnikov, who of course discovered a very long time ago that, you know, when he himself observed that people were living for a very long time in a certain area of Eastern Europe where there wasn't very much money, people didn't have very much food, life was hard, but people ate yogurt and that let them live very long lives. And, you know, if you go anecdotally, there is a lot of data around about probiotic food and linking probiotic food to longevity and and health and so on. So really summing all of this up, I think there are an area of great promise But really, there is still a lot we don't know, but diversity, lots of different types of bacteria are probably the most important areas to emphasize. Can it be harmful? Can such? Oh, yes, it it can indeed be, be harmful. So if you're getting your probiotics from food, in general, I've not come across any studies that show probiotic food to be harmful per se. But there are certainly case reports and case series out there where if you're in an immunocompromised state and you're taking a single species bacteria, and many of these studies have, or case reports have come actually from pediatric populations, so from children, from young people, then in an immunocompromised state, if you introduce one bacteria, you're tipping the balance of the ecosystem. And if you're tipping the balance of the ecosystem, which way you're tipping it is something you don't have any control over. So you're relying on a good immune system to control your ecosystem so that the bad bacteria are not amplified when the balance is tipped. So if you're taking probiotic supplements, there is definitely a dip which is amplified if you are in an immunocompromised state. But in general, for healthy population, you know, taking probiotic food or fermented milk, I've not come across any study for that. Wow. That, that has no Totally fascinating. Cool. Well, let's move on to talking about some other things. You know, your work talks not just about stress, but you know about resiliency and what we can do to strengthen our emotional regulation muscles. Can you give some of our listeners some tips for how can we increase our emotional regulation when we feel like we're just about to explode? Certainly. So you have things that you can do in the long term that improve your your self-regulation skills. And of course, I've, I've listened to your wonderful podcast before as well, disc- discussing this, the great work of um, Prof. Baumeister and so on. But you know, your self-regulatory skills are, of course, something that you have to work on, that you have to train, and you can train. It's, it's very easy to train if you want to. And on top of that, on the 
in the moment, in the, if you're facing a stressful situation, then there's certain things, of course, that you can do. So, you know, as a psychologist, you'll be familiar with the perils of rumination. So the moment, oh, yeah. yeah, so the moment you go through a stressful response and it's, it's common sense, but so that you know, many of us still fall into the trap of you go through something stressful and what do you do? You sit down, you relax, or you call a friend, you talk about it. And you dwell and you replay and you replay the event in your head. So if you do nothing else but just moment distress response is over, engage your mind into something else. Immerse yourself into something so deeply that your mind can't wander. So whether that's a game, whether that's a task, whether that's something you have to do, you know, an, uh, an errand you have to do, that's fine. So never, ever ruminate the moment a stress response is over. That's golden rule one. And I'd say probably for me personally, that's probably the most important intervention to do, because if you can cut short your stress response at that point, your HPA axis activity, so your cortisol release, the release of all your stress hormones, is curtailed. And given how, you know, according to this theory of allostatic load of the theory of chronic stress, the little, it's all the little events that add up. So if each little event is made as short as possible, then even if you have 20 during your day, you are far more resilient in that you return to baseline, your sympathetic and parasympathetic balance is quickly restored. And that has implications and so many other things. So for instance, studies have shown, and I've quoted in my book, the fact that, again, these are mouse studies, but if you take a mouse and you expose the mouse to stress, and in the studies I've quoted, it's, it's really injury-related stress, then if you can curtail that stress response as soon as possible, you reduce cracks forming in the mouse's intestines. You know, there are studies, for instance, also in humans, that things like public speaking, speaking in public, causes immediate cracks in your intestinal lining. So if you can curtail your stress response, these cracks don't form or they heal faster. So you have so many downward repercussions of cutting a stress response short. And you know, then of course there is the question of cortisol, because cortisol is of course, it's not a harmful hormone. We need cortisol, it saves our lives. But it's a marker for an extended or extensive HPA axis reactivity. And also too much cortisol is what causes the harm. So just that one little step of the moment your stress response is over, stop your brain from thinking you're still experiencing it by thinking about something completely different. I think that's really interesting. And speaks to the power of meditation and other sort of stress techniques where you really retrain your attention or you strengthen your muscle to be able to control your attention. But sometimes meditation doesn't work. And you talk about that in your book. Can you please talk about what sort of goes wrong in some of these stress techniques? So, I mean, if you look at the spectrum of chronic stress, the, the really good way of looking at it is, what happens in acute stress? So we all know that acute stress is not harmful. It's an evolutionary mechanism we have. It's allowed us to survive. And short bouts of stress is good for us. You know, they are all good for us. What actually happens during an acute stress response isn't just what you're feeling. 
you're actually having more than seven processes taking place inside your brain and your body. So the moment you become acutely stressed, for instance, you become momentarily insulin resistant. Your body clocks are suddenly more vulnerable to change. You become acutely inflamed. Um, that doesn't sound good. HP- <laughs> no, no, no. They're all good because imagine oh. you're about to be mauled by a lion. So just imagine, you know, it's it's now several thousand years ago and you're you're gone, you've spotted something you really like in the wilderness, you really like to have for dinner, and you're running after it, and then a lion comes after you instead. And it is about to, you know, maybe attack you, physically harm you. So you want to be inflamed because then any germs entering your body, you want to be insulin resistant because the selfish brain is the reason why we have the rest of the body. Our body is there to serve the brain. So at moments of acute stress, you want all the blood sugar you have to be there, available to the brain, should it need any more energy. That's why the rest of the body becomes insulin resistant. No glucose can enter muscle or your liver so that it's all there to enter into your brain. So all of these are evolutionary mechanisms there to serve us, to help us survive. And all of them stop the moment your bout of acute stress is over. So when it comes to chronic stress, what actually happens is it's almost as if these processes go awry. So you have insulin resistance, which isn't instantaneous, it becomes chronic. You have inflammation, which isn't instantaneous, it becomes chronic. You have HPA axis reactivity, which either becomes excessive or too little. So all of these seven agents go awry. They just go completely wrong. They're like seven secret agents who then turn rogue. And then, and when that happens, it happens to different people in different ways. So one person might be affected more by insulin resistance and another person might be affected more by uh, disordered emotional regulation, while a third person might be affected more with disordered circadian rhythms. And really it's in that context that not every stress solution that's out there will work equally well for everyone. So for example, if you're a pilot working long haul or you're a shift worker, then doing something like mindfulness meditation won't be as effective for you as really focusing on getting your daylight, your darkness intervals, normalizing your melatonin production and timing your heat, your light your exercise exposure to the time of day, that will reduce your HPA axis reactivity or activity much more and make you feel calmer and better and reduce levels of chronic stress. So that's one way in which things like meditation might not work equally for everyone. And it will do everyone a little bit of good, but it won't be as potent an anti-stress formula for, say, a shift worker than it would be, say, for someone, say, a nurse who works on a very, say, an oncology ward or a pain management ward where you're seeing a lot of emotional trauma and emotionally taxing situations. In that situation, something like focused attention meditation would probably be far better than another intervention. What do you think about open monitoring meditation, which has been shown to be related to creativity? So that's an interesting one. I think every kind of meditation has its place and has its benefits. And I think that when it comes to open monitoring meditation, one of the research areas I've come across, one of the studies that you've, I'm sure, read as well, 
is independent of creativity, so just in the sense of making people calmer, is it can unmask um, anxiety. So I know one randomized control trial that was carried out on school children on a mindfulness program showed that after I think it was eight weeks of practicing mindfulness meditation, anxiety levels were actually raised in the male members of the, uh, of the volunteers. So there is that aspect of it. So in terms of stress, I think focused attention meditation is more logical because it trains your attentional focus, which of course you need in order to rescue yourself from a stress response. Now, with regard to creativity, that's a really interesting one also because of the work that, well, the pieces that you've written on this as well, because monitoring um, meditation is clearly has a place. And also with the discovery of the DMN, of default mode network, it has tremendous potential and a huge place in creativity. And I think what I found really interesting is the most recent study on this that shows you need a little bit of both. You need f- to focus almost on mind wonder and, and wonder at the same time in order to really tap into your creative juices. I think you wrote about this in a Scientific American piece a while ago, but a paper recently came out confirming this. So I think that the problem with regard to stress is many people who are very highly strung, who tend to ruminate a lot, If they are placed in a situation where they're monitoring their thoughts without controlling them or without pushing them away, and they have a tendency towards negative rumination, then that can pull them into negative rumination and might increase their anxiety levels. That said, if you're doing it in the context of creativity, the effect of that is completely different. That's such a great, great point. It just reminds reminds me of that recent model by Jessica Anders Hanna and colleagues on spontaneous cognition interacting with with controlled cognition. You know, if you kind of have both, like rumination, you're kind of out of control in your in the cognitions you don't want to have. But creativity seems to be this beautiful combination of controlled chaos. That's right. And and I think that one of the things that really I find so intriguing is that Kazuo Ishiguro son who won the Nobel Prize for Literature last year, he gave an interview in uh, one of the papers in Britain where he described doing just this. So he described how when he wrote, I think he decided he was going to write Remains of the Day and he, he had a plot or he was thinking about it. He had a plot and so on. And then he just left it. He just went off and he just put his brain into, you know, information absorbing mode or whatever. Then he came back And then he decided, okay, I'm going to write Remains of the Day within, I think it was a four-week period. And what he did was he shut himself into his room and he focused, but he let his mind wander and he focused on letting his mind wander. So it's almost as you just described, he, he ruminated and he kept focusing on what he ruminated through or toward. And at the end of the four weeks, he had the novel. And I thought that's a fantastic demonstration of this phenomenon. Oh, that's a great example. And it's just so fascinating. Our brain is so fascinating. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. I, well, I want to, you know, I could talk to you all day, as you know. Let me ask you one more question. Why have certain pharmaceutical companies abandoned its efforts to find a cure for Alzheimer's? While interventions such as the mind diet and cognitive training programs and games online 
are becoming more and more popular. What's going on there? So I think that we are going through a really exciting time in brain research where we are discovering that many of these processes, many of, of the brain, not just degenerative processes, but just situations where the brain is not behaving optimally. So situations that are not, you know, an acute injury or an acute lesion in the brain. We're finding that much of the cause behind it is really the brain's own plasticity. So as an example, in chronic stress, we know that if you animal studies show this very clearly, but now we're getting some inkling of this also through human studies, because, you know, just I think it was January 2017, when the Karolinska Institute published a study of work exhaustion, showing that work exhaustion played a probable causal role in causing shrinkage of parts of the prefrontal cortex in humans, which is a really, really exciting um, observation. But I, I think what is actually going on here is, for instance, in chronic stress, chronic stress is not a disease. It's the brain changing itself in response to what is being demanded of it. And the consequences of those changes are pathological. So as the prefrontal cortex remodels itself, as you have deficiency or change in synaptic plasticity, favoring emotional reactivity, working against prefrontal control, you're having an almost remodeling process going on in the brain that's initiated and propagated by the brain itself. So in order to undo that process and to go back to baseline, you can't just treat a single molecular pathway. You have to deal with the cues that the brain responds to in the environment. And the example of Pfizer and Alzheimer's research is a brilliant one because what we're finding is, I mean, in dementia and in Alzheimer's disease, it's still a slightly foggier picture, but we are finding that lifestyle interventions, especially when carried out in a multifaceted way, seem to have, certainly in some cases, almost astounding results in producing change, positive changes that no drug and no single treatment pathway can produce. It's almost you are giving the brain a set of cues and the brain is doing the work by itself. And that's why things like diet, we just mentioned the mind diet, for instance, which is shown to have, again, positive effects on the brain. But things like diet, things like cognitive training, things like working with the brain to give the brain cues from the outside so that the brain can remodel itself in the way that you want it to is a far more potent and powerful and actually obviously much safer way of doing things, especially in a non-pathological context, than using a drug, using a nootropic, stimulating one single pathway, and so on. So that's a really, really exciting time that we are passing through, the fact that we are able to see this in action, to see the early results of this coming through. Well, thank you so much for imparting your obvious depth of wisdom on this podcast and your unique ability and vantage point from your unique background of medical training as well as psychological training. So thank you for chatting with me today. You know I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast 
and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com.